We have been in the book of 1 John together, and we had provided a resource, and I think we caused them to go on back order, so we've just been waiting for them to get here, so if you never got one but you wanted one, just you can raise your hand. Jimmy's got them. He can give them to you right now. If you were one of the ones waiting, uh, you can go ahead and let Jimmy know, and he'll He'll hand one of those to you. All it is is an ESV scripture journal, and so it has the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in it, and it's just a place where you can keep all your sermon notes together and kind of have those uh, for the future. But we're in 1st John chapter 2 together today, and we're looking specifically at verses 7 and 8. 1st John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. If in the future you want one of those, uh, we're just going to put them on those shelves uh, right, out, right out there in the welcome area. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, if you've not been with us, we have come from the beginning of 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up into this point. And so we as a church can kind of understand this in context. So what John had just told them is, uh, well, you can look up there, uh, just past few verses. And by this we have known we that we've come to know him, that we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And so basically he's saying that if you say that you know God, that you have fellowship with him, then certain things will necessarily follow to prove that to be the case. And so what he's proving is that you will basically be fulfilling the law. But what is the law? In John's terms, it is love for the brothers. Saying basically, love for the brothers is what will be evidenced. Okay, so Jesus had summarized the law back in Matthew 22, and it said, basically, love God completely and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? When we looked at this, the two tables of the law, we looked at how there was love toward God, we looked at how there's love toward neighbor, and if we're just loving perfectly, we would ultimately fulfill the law. Paul helped us understand that over in Romans chapter 13, love is a fulfillment of the law. So if we would just love perfectly, there would be no problem because we'd be fulfilling the law and ultimately we wouldn't be sinning and so we wouldn't need a savior. But since we're unable to do so and we've broken the law and we're not able to love perfectly, then we need a savior to save us from the wrath of God. And that is why John had told us that he is the propitiation for our sins, that he is taking away the very wrath of God that we rightfully deserved. And so all that has been said already. And so that leads us to where we are. And now he says, remember that John, the way he's writing, he likes to reinforce what he said already. He likes to say something and then he likes to say it again. And then he likes to say it again in another way. And then later on, he's going to say it again. And then later on, he's going to say it again. And so by the end of his letter, we're going to know what he had to say because he said it many different times in many different ways so that we can understand. John's heart is very evident here, isn't it? Because he really 
genuinely wants the believers to know what he's saying and to know why this matters. So he's saying kind of again in another way, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but, but it's an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. You've already heard it before. What is he trying to say? They've had something from the beginning. And the beginning seems to be the same for all of them. When was the beginning? Since the beginning of time? None of us were there. We didn't have anything then. Uh, what about from the beginning of our life, from the beginning of our birth? You know, something like that. I, we didn't have it then. What, 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 is that, what exactly is he saying to us? And ultimately he's saying that when the gospel message first came to them, the commandment of love came with it. And so from the beginning of the gospel proclamation that they heard, this commandment for love was already there. It is not something new. It is something old. In fact, it's so old, he went back and traced it, as Paul did, as Jesus did, through the command to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's very old. It's nothing new. It's something old. But love seems to be at the heart of the gospel message. In other words, when the gospel was proclaimed to these people, to these believers, the message of love was interwoven into the gospel message itself. And so love is at the heart of the gospel message. Take away love, and you're not going to have a gospel message. Now, what might that mean exactly? Jesus said in John 13, John's gospel, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How is that? What follows there? If you have love for one another. But then we have kind of the opposite in Paul's words over in Titus 3.3. 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, we were disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. And then what does it say? What, what, it, what exactly would, could be a good summary of the unsaved condition? And he says, you were hated by others and hating one another. Hate. Before you came to Christ, there was hate. But now as a disciple you are going to be marked by love. And that's how people will know that you're my disciples. Love certainly is at the heart of the gospel message, but here's the thing. Say that to pretty much anybody, and they're going to say, amen. That's right. You got it. Love, everything, it just needs love. All we need is love. Love is the answer. If we all could just love, then wouldn't everything be great? Is that what we mean? Well, if you would just love perfectly, you wouldn't have broken the commands of God. So maybe love is all we need. Interesting. But there seems to be a definition of Christian love that is different than our definition of Christian love. And when I say our, I mean the biblical definition of Christian love. How does the Bible define love? I'm going to argue this morning that the biblical definition of Christian love is very different than the Christian love that is being proclaimed from the rooftops today. It is a very different message. It has a very different definition. If I could summarize it, I would say that the, the new definition of Christian love is that of solidarity with the diverse and ever-evolving individual human experience as understood through the current cultural ideals. I had to read that because I chose all those words carefully. I'm going to say it again. I spent a lot of time on that sentence, so I'm going to say it twice, okay? 
the new definition of Christian love seems to be that of solidarity with the diverse and ever-evolving individual human experience as understood through the current cultural ideals. That is the new definition of Christian love. It teaches all humans are God's beloved children, and if God loves them, you should too. So to love someone means to accept, to embrace, and to celebrate how God has made them and to help them along their journey to self-discovery, whatever that may look like. This refers to both what they believe and what they practice. People can believe whatever they want about the Bible, about God, Jesus, salvation, the church, so long as this belief does not infringe upon the beliefs of another. That is, your claim to truth cannot be exclusive or objective, It must be true for you, but not objective. It must be subjective. In other words, your truth can be different than my truth. But you better not tell me that your truth is better than my truth. To infringe upon the beliefs of another beloved child of God is unloving. Right? And this is the essence of what it is to be Christian, is to love, right? So where does this lead? I'm sure Rob has enjoyed looking at that image for the last several minutes. So I I pulled this from... uh, uh, a church's Facebook page. It says, God loves you. God created you. You are made in God's image. God gave you your LGBTQIA plus gifts. God wants you to love you the way that God loves you. And what followed was, amen. This is love, right? We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be accepting. We're supposed to be embracing. We're supposed to say, God made you this way, whatever way you are. In fact, all the different distinctives about you, God actually gave you those gifts. They're gifts. Everything about you is a gift, from God. Simply embrace it and come to understand it and be you. Or how about this? Different church. This is a church in Nashville. From their What We Believe section, we affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life. Or how about this one? Most of us are between supernatural theism and panentheism. Isn't that lovely? That people with disparate ideas can fellowship in the mystery of God with humility and equanimity and not have to kick somebody out of the, and disfellowship them. Isn't that lovely? That's what so desperately, listen to the language, that's what so desperately Christianity needs to embrace and move forward. He says, this is a conversation he was having with his church about uh, embracing fully the idea of being a progressive Christian church. And so he said, most of us gathered together, it'd be like me saying to you, listen, we've gathered together, we're trying to figure this whole thing out together. And what we've come to realize as we have these conversations about God and the dialogue of the the mystery that is God, uh, we realize that some of us are supernatural theists and some of us are panentheists. Isn't that lovely that we can all have fellowship together? Lovely. 
because it's embracing of no objectivity concerning the nature of God. That's what makes it lovely. You know what panentheism is? Polytheism is a belief in many gods. We get that, right? Polytheism. Pantheism is Greek word pan, theos, everything, God. God is everything. That's what pantheism is. Panentheism is a little different. Panentheism is uh, everything in God, or God is in everything and everything is, is in God. God is in everything. One person said in defining this word, panentheism avoids the world's influence upon God. In other words, God made you and God is in you, so the more we can understand you, the more we understand God himself. So therefore, it's a quest for a personal discovery of who God made you to be. And if we can figure out who God made you to be, that's the you that we need to love and embrace, and we need to love and embrace the God that made you. And that is love. Is it true that love is at the heart of the gospel message? According to John, the answer was yes. This command to love was with you from the beginning, from the beginning of the gospel proclamation. It was not without love. Love is necessarily tied to the gospel, but not like that. That is very incorrect. And why do I draw this out for us this morning? Why is it worthy of our discussion? It's because I care that when things like this come about so prevalently as they do, that you might say, I already know where you're going with this. I get your ideological framework. I get where you're coming from. I get what you're trying to say about God, and I reject it. It's not biblical. They call themselves a Christian church. We call ourselves a Christian church, but we are very very different. Not Christian by denomination, by the way, uh, if any of you don't know that, okay, if you're visiting or something. Uh, just, we are Christians. We're the church of God, but they would say the same thing. But what we believe is very different. What I would say is this. Look at, uh, if you would, just for a second, turn, turn over a page. I don't know where it is in your Bible. Maybe you don't have to turn a page. It's, just look at 1 John chapter 3. I had to turn a page. I, you might have to, too. 1 John 3, look at verses 1 through 3. What it's saying to us, I, I'm going to say this before we read it, that if you truly are a beloved child of God, this relationship will necessarily lead you to a life of holiness. Holiness. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Notice the inclusive, or exclusive, I should say, language there. That, in, in other words, there's a particular group that we should be called children of God. You see it again? We, us. And so we are. The reason why the world, there's the other group. Do you see two different groups? We are called children of God. The world is called the world. The sons of disobedience. Right? Okay, so... Uh, beloved, we are God's children now. I skipped a part, didn't I? The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. So the, the gr there's a group here that knows God and are our beloved children of God. There's a group that does not know God. 
we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So being identified as a beloved child of God necessarily leads you to a life of purity, in other words, holiness. You see the big distinction here as being a beloved child of God, I don't simply just embrace the way God made me in the sense of any flaws or anything that I have. I simply want to embrace and understand how it is that God made me. I'm my own unique self and I need to love myself the way God loves me. Rather, we should say, I am a beloved child of God and so what this necessarily means is by the spirit of God and by his word, I understand where myself is not lining up with his true self. I match who I am and my flaws up with the perfect holy character of God and I say, where is the difference? How is my life not matching up to the holy character of God? And as the word speaks that truth into my life and the Holy Spirit applies the conviction of that truth into my life and enables me to reject it, I'm becoming holy. This idea of holiness is not involved in these current progressive Christian deconstructionist circles. It's not there. Third John, uh, verse four. There's no chapters. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We already know John's heart here. He's gonna say that later. We're gonna talk about that later when we get there. But no, even from now, John's heart is that the children of God, who he kind of adopts as his children, that he might teach them and be a spiritual father to them. He says, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that you are walking in the truth, not walking in what he has identified for us here and now as in the light or in the darkness. He wants the beloved children of God to be walking in the light. And if you say you belong to God while you walk in the darkness, this proves the fact that you are not actually a child of God. You do not know him, you do not have fellowship with him, and your life proves that to be the case. So this is an old commandment. It's one that we've heard. It's one that we've had from the beginning. It's necessarily attached to the proclamation of the gospel. So what does he say next? Look at verse 8. So at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's kind of like these moments where we read this in scripture and we say, thanks for confusing me. So it's, it's, this is old and you've had it from the beginning. I'm not writing anything new to you. And then he says, but this is new. This is a new, this is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Uh, and we say, so how is this both old and new? How is this commandment to love both old and new? We get how it's old. But how is it new? In essence, he's saying this is new in you. It is true in you. It is true in him, but it is new for you. This is not a new truth for God. This is not a new commandment according to God. But the fact that the light of the gospel is shining in your hearts now and was not previously. You see, right now you have come to understand this commandment. And so now all of a sudden you're awakened to say, this is new to me. This is new. This this is a new idea, right? It's old, And I get that it's old. God has been saying this for a long time. But you know what? It's new to me in the the sense that for the first time, I can hear the command and I can be obedient to it. 
This is new. Although it's an old commandment, the fullness of its reality is now at work in me. The work is because of Jesus, and it's now at work in us who believe in Jesus. And so we tie these two truths together. Number one is that Jesus is the light of the world. That's a pretty common theme, isn't it? That's one that we already know. Jesus is the light of the world. Listen to how John says it, though, in John 1, 9 through 13. John 1, 9 through 13, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The Lord is our salvation. It is he that is at work in our salvation. We're going to get more to the point of that. I about, I about jumped the gun there. I got excited about it. But that's what's being said here, is it not? The true light came into the world. Into what kind of world did he come? Into a light full of darkness. And so when the light of the world came into a world full of nothing but darkness, there are certain ones who were born as children of God who said, yes, he is the light of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. This is he. This is him. But many rejected him. And many hated him. They hated him so much, they killed him. But the fact that Jesus is the light of the world breeds another truth, which is this, is that we are the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I would summarize that by, by saying this. As the light of Christ shines in our hearts, we in turn become lights shining in the world. And this occurs as we live and proclaim the gospel of truth. How do we shine as lights in the world? Well, we can't shine unless our dark hearts, our dark lives are brought to light. We cannot shine without the light of Christ. And so the light of Christ then makes us shine. And so what is shining is Christ himself through us. Are you a light shining into the darkness of the world around you? Are you standing on the truth of Scripture? Does your life accurately reflect those truths? Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as John will direct us to? One reality I want us to see this morning about how the light is already here, the light is already working, and the darkness is already passing away. This is true in us, and it is true in him. What does all this mean? One of these things that we need to pull out, that we must pull out, that I find as incredibly important for us, especially in our current cultural situation, is this. God intends to use us, believers, the lights of the world, to expose the works of darkness. And if you are lights in this world, the light of the world, there's no other source of light in the world, by the way. There are not many lights. There are not multiple lights. There are not different ways that we can illuminate 
the darkness. There is only one way that the, dar- that the darkness can be illuminated, and as that is in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's word. He, he is what gives light to the dark world. So you can't shine a light of, huh, uh, you can't shine a light of intersectionality. You can't shine a light of critical race theory. You can't shine a light of any kind of other secular mindsets or philosophies onto the world and say, see, here's the darkness that you're in. What we must shine on the world is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what brings light to the dark world. Are you being used by God to shine on the darkness of the light or of, of the darkness around you as lights of the world? I'd like to take you to just, uh, uh, I was going to say one place, that's not true. But if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me, I want to show you something. Ephesians chapter 5. And look at verses 5 through 14 with me. I'm going to reinforce this idea here by showing you Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Okay, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 5. And it says, For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I mean, we could stop right there and have lots of application. But it says, for because of these things, not in spite of them, but because of them, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness. That's where you lived. That's where you were. That's, that's what defines you. But now you are in the light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awaken, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This word for expose here that we found means to convict, means to reprove, it means to rebuke, but the context tells us what it means is to bring it into the light so as that it may be seen. If there's something in the darkness, you can't see it. But if you shine a light on it, all of a sudden you can see it. That imagery makes sense to us. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it shines on the darkness, then we can see it for what it actually is. Have you ever used something in the dark? And you're like, ah, you're feeling around and you say, ah, you know, I kind of know what this is and uh, I'm going to use it and... And, uh, you know, we can move on. And so you stumble around in the dark, but at the same time, you're familiar with the dark. You know, the more you live in the dark, the more comfortable you are living in the dark. And you start to understand things. But there have been times when I've used something in the dark only to have the light turned on and the thing that I had was not what I thought it was. Right? I guess you're using your imagination to figure out what that was, right? So I, I have something in the dark, but I don't really understand what it is. And how can you? How can you understand what something is in the dark? Unless you shine a light on it. You can get a feel for it. It kind of feels like what it is. 
But the idea is that you can't see something, you can't understand something until you shine a light on it. And so we shine the truth of the gospel, we shine the truth of God's word onto something, and it shows it for what it really is. And now I can understand it. Are there things in your life, in the world around you, that you have chosen to allow to remain in the darkness without shining the truth of God's word on it because you don't want to see what's in the darkness? You don't want to know what it actually is. I want to keep that thing in the darkness because I like it. Whatever it is, I have a feeling I'm not going to like, you know, God's word is not going to like it and not going to tell me good things about it. But if I shine a light on it, I might have to come to the reality that I have to do away with that. But I don't want to do away with that. I want to leave it in the dark. Shine the light of God's word on something. He exposes it for what it is. And you are to either embrace it as true or you are to reject it as false. Is this how your life works? Or are you kind of stumbling through the world? I think about it this way. I, I like dimmable lights. And I think, you know, a dim light doesn't hurt my eyes as much as a bright light. And so in the morning, I'll make things dim. And if I make it dim enough, it's almost like I can't draw a line between what is dark and what is light. And maybe that's the best world to live in, where I'm just kind of oblivious to what's going on. It might be good, it might be bad, but who is there to tell? I don't know. It's walking around when there's a glimmer of light, but I can't actually see, but I'm going to say that I can see. I can see good enough. I fear that this is the way that most churches are operating today. Let's turn the light down so as not to blind people and hurt them. That's not loving. Let's, let's turn the light down. Let's not identify sin. Let's just kind of paint a broad picture and we'll let you go with that, whatever you think. And so, the Makeup of the people is that, well, what's coming from the church is kind of open to interpretation. I can kind of either say it's sin or not sin. I, I don't know. Nobody said. Um, so therefore, I guess I can choose whether it's sin or not sin. And, and I'm going to say it's not because that's most loving. Because you have in your mind what the culture is telling you about how to determine whether or not something is loving because it's not being told to you from the church. Because it is not being preached from the word. And so now we have churches full of people who don't, do not know appropriately how to shine the light of God's word into the darkness that is our world. But that is not us. That is not us and that will not be us. We must now, more than ever, turn up the brightness of the light so that we can see clearly the things that are happening in our world. Because God intends to use us to expose the works of darkness in the world. It does not simply say in this text, go back to Ephesians 5, 5 through 14. It is not saying, do not participate them in, in those things and leave it at that. Do not participate in those things which you have identified as darkness and expose them for what they are. Two things involved there, right? Don't involve yourself in it, certainly but then also expose it for what it is. Is that a little terrifying? It's okay to answer yes to that. I mean, is it a little terrifying? 
uh, in the world that we live. Why is that? Because most things that we shine the light of the truth of God's word on, we're going to have to say, it's not good. And we are going to be at odds now because I have exposed something that you so dearly and desperately love and cling to as the very essence of your being. And I have said God disapproves of that. That's hard. Peter speaks to this difficult task, and I'd like to read it for you. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. And so although it is, us who are to expose the works of darkness in this world, how do we do it? I think here is a divide in some circles, right? How do I expose this? How do I expose darkness in our world? I do it by being mad at the world. I do it by insulting them. But is that the way that we are to expose darkness in the world? We are to have good behavior. We need to have a good conscience in what we're doing. We need to do this with gentleness and respect. This is what scripture calls us to as we live as light in the midst of a dark world. In us, the darkness is passing away and so therefore it seems like every step, every mark, every step of the ladder that we go, it is that the light of the gospel is shining more and more in our lives. The darkness is already passing away. The true light is already shining. The true light is shining in you. Is it shining brighter and brighter so as to expose both the darkness in the world and the darkness in your own heart? Or have you simply got to a particular spot and said, that's enough light for me. I'm drawing too much attention here. I'm starting to see things in my own heart and the deep recesses of my own heart that I don't like and I know that God doesn't like. And so let's turn the dial down a notch. People are starting to notice me as a light shining in the darkness and I don't like that. Let's turn the dial down a notch. The standard of a church certainly filters into the standard of the individuals of that church true? We need to have a high standard. Scripture has a high standard. Holiness is the standard. Is holiness the standard in your life? Is the gospel shining brighter and brighter in your life? Let me just summarize this thought here. What will be the result of a life marked by light? A life marked by light, the light of the gospel, is it's going to expose in and around you. It's going to expose things in and around you. I've already said this, but I know there are some note takers, okay? Make sure we're remembering this reality. If you are a person who is living in the light, 
walking in the light because you have fellowship with God and you live in the light. Because you can't live, say you have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness. The longer you are in the light, the more brightly you are going to shine and reflect the great glory of God in this world. And I understand that it could be scary at times. But have no fear of them. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being ready, always being prepared to give a defense for anyone who asks for the hope that is in you yet. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that they might see your good behavior and in so doing, they will be put to shame. This is our call. A reference here, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 7, because I, I think it's, it's helpful. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, covered, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? No, in the beginning. That same God that said, let light shine out of darkness to the creation has said, let light shine out of darkness into your own heart. The miraculous, sovereign working of God when he says, speaks, Let there be light. Let there be light inside of this dark heart, a work that only God can do. We trust in his work that he would shine the light of the gospel into people's hearts all around us, that he would shine the light of the gospel into our dark hearts. Your heart is not perfectly light yet. You have not reached it yet. There is work to be done. Still, the darkness is passing away, but it is not gone. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we hold on to this treasure, how? In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So this is not about proclaiming ourselves. Look at how light I am. Look at how great I am. Look at how much of a Christian I am. Look at how perfect I am. Look at how much more moral I am than you. You should be like me. I am a good one. I'm a beloved child of God, and you're not. Look at how pathetic you are. Be more like me. Sinful, wicked world. We are not proclaiming ourselves We are proclaiming Christ. This is not about us. It's about the great workings of the gospel. If you are going to say anything, if you're going to boast in anything, you boast in Christ because of the work that he has done in your life. You have not made any of the darkness in your life go away. None of it. It's not your work. You haven't done it. You are not making the darkness pass away. God is. It's his work in you. So what are you boasting in anyway? You didn't do any of it. We boast in the gospel. So let's not think that we are elevated, better than, superior to the world around us. 
I want to end here this morning. I want to make a connection here. I want to draw this idea together with the fact that we're about to have a baptism. And so let's look at Romans 6, 1 through 4, just for some thoughts of, of connection here with this idea. I was originally going to go, um, what, through verse 11 this morning, but I, I just knew that wasn't going to happen, so we'll, we'll pick up with verse 9 next week. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 4. I, I do have it on the screen, but it's good to look at it in your Bible. Okay, what does it say? So what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What would that be in John's terms? Saying you have fellowship with him while walking in the darkness. This is Paul's way of saying that same reality. He's saying, well, I have salvation, so what does it matter what I do with my life? I can live it any way I want because God's grace will cover any sin. And John says, that can't be the case. You cannot say you have fellowship with God and yet continue to walk in the darkness of sin. Those two realities cannot go together. So Paul says, by no means. You can't say that. So how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with, bapt uh, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Is your life marked by newness of life? Continually. 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 Newness of life. This is not how I think anymore. This is not how I act anymore. This is not how I treat people anymore. I don't do that anymore. I don't live in that world anymore. I've been brought out of that world and I live in the light now. I need to be exposing this darkness for what it is. Both in my own heart and in the world around me because I can't help it. I'm a beacon of light no matter where I go or what I do. I shine the light into my own heart. I shine the light around me. Yeah, people are not too happy about it sometimes. They're offended even by my very way of life. They are offended by the way I live my life. They're offended by my, by my morality. They're offended by the decisions I make. They don't like it. And yet by our good behavior, we put to shame their behavior This is the way God has designed it. But it is not to elevate us, it is to elevate the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me make a couple of comments here about baptism. Baptism, according to Paul here in Romans 6, symbol symbolically represents death and life. Because he says, can we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How could you do that? Because you died to sin. You're dead. You died to it. It's dead to you. So how can you embrace it? It's gone. It's not a reality anymore. How can you do that? You can't do that. By no means. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into what? Into his death. In order that we might be raised to walk in newness of life and show it's representative both of death and life. 
As a person is buried in the water, this shows death to sin. As a person is raised from the water, this shows life to God. It's very easy symbolism, isn't it? And this is what Paul is drawing out here. It's very representational of a person dying and being raised to new life and walking as a child of the light because you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And how can you, as someone who has been raised to walk in newness of life, ever say that I can just sin and grace is going to abound? Fooling yourself. You lie. That's what John has told us. So baptism is a proclamation to God, to the church, to the world, that a person has passed from death to life and that this new life will be evidenced by obedience to God's word. Right? Because your baptism does not save you. Let's come and dunk some people in the water. I mean, if that's all it took, let's line up. Might as well do it again. If if this is going to save us, let's all do it today. Why just one? Let's do it every week. Just to make sure. But it is also very symbolic of a cleansing, is it not? All throughout Scripture, we have this idea of cleansing. That what is being washed away? That which contaminates. And when you rise, you represent the fact that you have been cleansed and you are going to live in newness of life. Newness of life reflecting the light that you now live in. For those of you who have been baptized, I hope that your situation was different than mine. As I came to someone and said, I wanted to join a Baptist church. And this Baptist church pastor told me, listen, this is really just kind of like a formality. Um, So if we can just get it done, you can become a member because he really wanted me to play drums in the church. So if we can just go ahead and get this done already, we we can go ahead and get you into membership. You gotta get it's just it's just it's just formality, okay? Interesting. Uh, baptism is not a formality for membership. And if anyone believes that baptism is a formality for membership, you should not be baptized. This is incorrect. You should this is not the reason that you're being baptized as a formality for membership. However, it is required for membership. Why is that? Well, because it is a proclamation to God, the church, and the world that a person has passed from death to life. Jesus told us to baptize disciples. And so we keep in step with what Jesus commanded the church to do. As Calvin comes today, he is in essence proclaiming to all of you that you should, as he is making this a public demonstration, that he welcomes you to hold him accountable to his public declaration, right? He's nodding his head. This should be the case with all of us who are baptized. This public declaration of my faith is showing I have been cleansed by Christ. I am saying, yes, that is a reality. That is true, absolutely. But now my life is marked. As I rise up out of the water, it is marked by a newness of life that you can hold me to. Hold me accountable to it. I'm going to walk in newness of life. This is what God has called me to. This is what I'm going to do. Everybody watch. Everybody see. I'm showing you what I'm doing. It is a proclamation to God. It is a proclamation to us in the church. It is a proclamation to the world of the great work that Jesus Christ has done. And so when Calvin comes, he's going to, um, as, as we do with every baptism, which I think is, is, is good, is necessary, is he's going to share 
a glimpse of his testimony. I have to say glimpse because it is only a glimpse into his testimony. He's going to read that for you. And let me also make a personal note here while Kevin's way over there and I'm way over here. He said, if you have not yet got to know Kelvin, I want to encourage you to do so. Okay? I want to encourage you to approach Kelvin and to have a conversation with him and to get to know him for who he is because if you don't, you're missing out. So please get to know Kelvin. Okay? He wants it. Whether it looks like it or not, he wants it. Okay? Get to know him. And I hope that him reading his testimony before you all this morning kind of, it, 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 it gets you started in that process to know who he is. Okay? Calvin is also going to be up for a vote in our members meeting for, uh, uh, for uh, membership. Uh, and... So he is, he is telling you by his testimony, by his public declaration of his faith to all of us that, listen, I want to be part of what you're doing here. Hold me accountable to it as I hold you accountable, but this happens through relationships, right? Relationships are important. So, all right, I know, I better stop. Um, I, I just got myself on a, uh, on a, on a, kind of a treadmill there that I could keep going about that forever, but I'm going to stop. So we get the idea. I want to get to Calvin's baptism, and uh, we're going to sing a song together. I want you to consider what this song is saying. I want you to consider the truth of it, its relevance to what God's Word has been telling us this morning. And then after that, uh, we're going to hear from Calvin and uh, have his baptism, okay? Let's all pray together. Lord, we are grateful for this morning. We are grateful for your work in your church. We are reminded of the truth of your word this morning that we are to be as lights shining in a dark world and yet this comes with its challenges. Certainly it does. And it is not without effort. Certainly it requires effort. It is not our own purity that we're proclaiming to the world but we are proclaiming the purity of the gospel to the world. Help us to do so in a way that is humble, that points to Jesus Christ, that points to the gospel message, which certainly has at its heart love, your great love for us. You loved us even to the point that you sent your only, one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We love because you loved us. What is the measure of love? It is the way that you have loved us. Help us to love the way that you love in truth, with conviction. But let us love with humility because we are not God. We pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen.